The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Two men with identities forged in the white-hot fires of the 90s comic book boom. Now ready to re-examine the era where heroes became extreme and what magazine gave rise to a market of speculation. If you've got the guts, prepare to enter the world of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. Greetings, geeks, and welcome to episode 79 of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. The podcast where we re-examine the 90s comic book boom through the pages of Wizard Magazine. And reminding you that the X-Men writer Stephen T. Siegel is in no way related to Steven Seagal, but you can bet if that ponytail wearing poser got into writing comics, they would be more bizarre than the ones written in the 90s by the Ultimate Warrior. I'm Adam. Now, to kick off the show, a little bit of house cleaning here. Michael and I continue to be amazed by all the positivity that surrounds the podcast. We're glad that we entertain you enough that you're wanting to recommend Wizards to other comic book fans. And, you know, you're doing this all over social media. We see how many more people just start listening every week from that word of mouth. It's crazy. And also, though, you guys care enough to give us your feedback on what you don't like, but in a very measured and thought out way. So thanks for not being jerks. <laughs> not living up to the comic book fan stereotype, but uh, there is a small, but I would say vocal minority that have reached out to us on social media over the last few months to say they didn't enjoy episodes where some of our guests were speaking critically of 90s comics, a little derisively. And perhaps there was a perceived negative vibe coming from the guests who their bread and butter is deconstructing like the madness of the creative process, okay, that exists in this case in the comic book industry. They were knowledgeable enough to be able to point stuff out. But you know, this is a decade of excess. And that's what was chronicled in Wizard Magazine. And some of the stuff's ridiculous. And we point that out. I will say I personally found guests like Robert Brockway and Robert Clark Chan hilarious. And as for our other controversial guest, I'm still married to Dr. Kristen, <laughs> who one listener described as, quote, the kind of mean girl who would pick on me in high school. <laughs> so there's a lot to unpack there. But to be clear, she's not mean. She just has no frame of reference for what we were talking about and doesn't like the feeling of being clueless in any situation. So that one was definitely my fault, but i that's what, what I wanted from that episode, okay? <laughs> I would be equally grumpy if I was asked to guest on a serious sports podcast. In fact, I would be mercilessly mocking the institution of organized sports to the point that the host or hosts would surely give me a wedgie while simultaneously delivering a swirly. So uh, that's just the way that would go. All that being said, we're still going to book whoever the heck we want to talk to because we welcome differing opinions and we love to hear them. But consider our guest tonight a course correction for you folks who only want to hear from individuals who love 90s comics and actually know who the hardcore from Valiant Comics were. So joining us this time around is a loyal listener to the show and all around nice guy, Chris Bailey. How you doing, buddy? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on, Adam. Yeah, we correspond a lot back and forth. You're, you're, you're part of the inner circle at the Retro Network, our home, and you also are a fan of just getting out to the thrift stores like me, so we have a lot in common. We You've donated some things recently to the archives, which we really appreciate, so that was awesome. I love funded things for people, so I'm always uh, constantly keeping an eye out. 
Yeah, just bring back those memories, that nostalgia for people. So here's the thing, though. If you're a real dedicated geek, if you've been listening to every episode, you know we originally announced this as just a Michael and Adam episode. It was just going to be the host, but there was a little bit of uncertainty as to whether or not Michael could make it. And wouldn't you know it, he was not able to make it, at least at the start of the show. He may be joining us halfway through. But luckily, Chris was here, uh, ready uh, to come in and help us out. And hey, we want to get to know a little bit about your journey uh, through comic book fandom. So Chris, why don't you tell us your origin story? Well, like uh, many of our favorite heroes of the 90s, my origin story may or may not be two or three different things. So my mom liked Archie when she was growing up. So she would buy those Archie Digests from the store from time to time. And I kind of remember reading one or two of those when I was probably seven or eight. And that sort of opened the door. Then it diverges from there because I can't remember one Christmas or birthday I received. So I think it was Sears or JC Penney's used to have these comic book collecting kits you could order through the catalogs yeah and they came with uh like a marvel art box and like some random comic book and some sleeves and so receiving one of those for my birthday or i may lose some people on this one because uh, <laughs> i sort of grew up in a really real rural town and we had what we called a trading post jim's trading post and it was a bookstore slash hardware store slash everything but everything was for the most part used like you'd go there if you need a random weird screw you could go down to jim's trading post dig through bins and find one like it wasn't organized nothing was taken care of and jim's son russ loved comics and so he was selling comics down there and they would just put together random grab bags of comics and i my other early memory is getting one of those and whether i got that first or second i can't remember but those started me out. My first comics that I can really remember was Wolverine number six with Roughhouse and Bloodsport, I think it was. <laughs> and there was a random Conan comic. And uh, I think there was a Marvel fanfare with a um, awesome George Perez cover and Black Widow on the cover. Oh, neat. Um, and those are like the couple I remember the most. Oh, All-Star Squadron annual number one i think as well so it was like sort of a story of the golden age like wonder woman flash wildcat those guys that's pretty lucky for you that there was a comics fan uh, out in your area yeah well, it was we also relied on stores some stores had like a the magazine rack so we had a couple like comic books in one of our little country stores out there but it was that was sort of later towards I got into middle school. I remember getting like Guardians of the Galaxy and New Warriors and Marvel Comics Presents comics through them. But there was no regular source of comics where I was. So it was basically you had to, you were at the mercy of whatever was available. So it wasn't, uh, I didn't get a chance to really collect long runs up until I kind of got into later in high school. Um, and that's sort of where my collecting really took off because now I had my own money and I was able to like hunt down types of uh, different books. And so I started getting into image comics. I was uh, reading the Jim Lee run of X, the reboot of the X-Men with the blue team. Uh huh. Like my 
comic collecting changed throughout the years. Basically, I was at the mercy of a lot of people. Then I started getting my own money, and so I could actually start trying to collect runs of things and actually read storylines, not just read middle of the pieces and then never get back. Also, during that time, I had a bunch of cousins. I was sort of one of the younger cousins of my uh, family. My dad was the youngest. So a lot of my older cousins that were in high school when I was in middle school would dump off comics. So it'd be like Weird War Tales and New Mutants. Got a bunch of Weird New Mutants comics that I like read one-offs. Uh, again, these are all one-offs. So like I was sort of just getting a lot of diversity in my reading at that time. By the time I got to college, I sort of zeroed in on the type of stuff I was interested in. I had re read a bunch of Valiant, was still collecting Valiant stuff. Um, unfortunately, I got into it after Unity. So the stories were the ones that were starting to some of them were starting to lose their luster mm -hmm. a little bit. Savage Dragon was a favorite. I read a bunch of Sav all the Savage Dragon I could find up until like issue 20, I think. And I was just grabbing whatever I could find with the amount of money I had. And I was still somewhat limited because it was like an hour drive to the city to find a comic shop if I was to go to a comic shop. So yeah, I'd be just devouring anything I could f get a hold of. Sometimes some of my friends would have comics and we'd trade with them. And then by the time I got to college, my budget sort of disappeared. I had a little more money when I was in high school than when I was in college because I didn't have any bills. So college, I sort of worked in a comic shop for a little bit, like oh. under the table. Basically, I worked in the shop and he gave me like five bucks an hour and I'd take it out of the till at the end of the day. But half usually that money would go right back to uh, comics or card games of the shop. So basically, I'd just work in the shop to like feed my habit. Now, while you were working in the shop, my question would be, did you just leaf through issues of Wizard Magazine, or were you actually buying your own copies? Wizard, I would try to buy my own when I could. I'd grab them from time to time when I could, but uh, like five bucks was a lot for me at the time, so... Sometimes I'd buy the used ones if you could find them in the shops or you borrow them. I was pretty sporadic up until probably about the year 99, 2000, when I actually had a regular job and I was just finishing up school. And I realized I could save a lot of money with just a wizard subscription. So I ended up going that route, bought the subscription around that point in time. And so then I started really getting into it. This is something I've always wanted to know with the subscription. Did you still like if it was polybagged and came with all, you know, the pack in items, did you get that as the subscription? Like, did it come in a polybag or did it come just in a clear plastic protective cover? And that was it. Just the issue. I seem to remember getting all the stuff in it with the polybag. OK, I've, uh, like it's it's been a while. But I think they, I think we did get a bunch of the stuff with it. It was nice. I remember the first wizard I ever saw was wizard number one. And that was from my cool older cousins that came down from Alaska with all their awesome Todd McFarlane comics and all these things that I'd never seen before. And they also had wizard number one, which I thought was an amazing book. That's but really cool. Yeah. To have family that was in on the ground floor. That's neat. We commiserate because they'd love buying comics down here, actually, because up in Alaska, the comics were a lot more expensive yeah what they had told. my wife used to live in alaska before we were married and she has told me the stories yeah <laughs> how much everything costs up there i was like oh i can only imagine no the other thing i wanted to ask you about is i know that recently you've been coming across a lot of 90s comics ephemera like posters and promotional items and things like that are you doing is that like at antique stores is that at thrift stores like what are you finding and where is it at so a lot of the ephemera i found well i've worked in a couple different game stores and comic shops and hobby shops in different capacities so oh. i've picked up a lot of that type of stuff over the years as well because that's the type of stuff i like because usually it gets thrown out so i like I always like holding on to that type of stuff because it's neat but i there's this little hole in the wall flea market 
that's held right next to actually the big flea market. So you never know what somebody's going to sell at one of these things. And I yeah. bought the last one I went to, I bought a bunch of pogs. Um, <laughs> yeah, they were still like, sealed, right? They were on. Yeah, the a bunch of Marvel pogs. I already sold most of those. I kept a few for myself, but I ended up moving a lot of those along. But it's always got a lot of weird vintage awesome stuff i can always find something at these flea markets but right next door to the fairgrounds was another little place i went in there one day and i picked up a couple cool things like some cool posters and he used to own a card shop in california in the 90s and so he's just sort of selling all his stuff sells everything for 50 cents or dollar depends on how much you're buying is trying to move all his old stock out slowly but surely Oh, that's the dream, man. Just finding somebody's stockpile that they've been sitting on for all those years. That's great. Well, it's crazy because I know he has way more stuff. But like uh, these old guys like this, you're sort of at their mercy. You have to wait. So I gave him my number to let me know when they're going to bring stuff in. But half the time that never worked. Um, (laughs) So I'm going to wait until the fall and I'm going to go back and see if they have any more. And if they don't, I'm going to try to see if I can set up and go meet up with them at their storage place where they have it and see if I can actually do some pick in there. Good luck with that. Now, here's the thing I feel like, Chris, back in the day, you know, you know, you couldn't get on Craigslist and find, uh, you know, a listing for comics or Facebook Marketplace or whatever. A lot of times you had to go like in the penny saver. You had to, you know, look at a community bulletin board and somebody's posting their stuff. You can come just pick up and take away. And I, every once in a while, somebody would get excited. You might get a little mail away offer even, you know, be like, hey, yeah, ship it out to me. So we are going to check out the mail that was coming into with with Willie Lumpkin's mailbag. So our first letter here kind of ties into my intro up top. This is, guy's name is Steve Zeesh, but his email address is farmermo at AOL.com, which <laughs> do you know that is that a pop culture reference? I've never heard that before. So somebody out be. there knows. All right. Well, here's what he says. Dear Jimmy, love what you do with the magazine, whatever the hell it is you do. Anyway, the writer of Uncanny X-Men number 350 is a guy named Steven Siegel. Is this the same Steven Siegel that was in such movies as Fire Down Below and Under Siege? And so Jim McLaughlin's response here. Gee, high praise indeed. Love what you do with the farm, whatever the hell it is you do. Anywho, X-Writer Steven Siegel is not to be confused with action movie hero Steven Seagal. Constantly thwarted by this confusion, Siegel, the writer, refers to Seagal as a monosyllabic preposition article down movie actor or a stand-in or whatever who's just trying to rip off my tag to get recognition. Maybe so, but I bet not Mr. Marked for Death to kick scrawny comic writer butt any day of the week. The fight is on, and I'll be over at the betting window taking action at 100 to 1 with Seagal as the favorite. Until next month, Jim McLaughlin. So that was his last letter in this issue. But I, even when my wife was on that I made reference to earlier, she's like, Steven Seagal? And it's like, nobody knows how that guy's name is spelled, apparently. <laughs> 
<laughs> this cracks me up though the steven siegel fella just couldn't get a break everybody thinks he should have a ponytail and be wearing all black and talking like this yeah anyway uh, i will mention i'm not going to get into any details but our former co-host steven sapelis he used to work in reality television and as you might know steven seagal had a reality television show that he had to edit and he said it was his least favorite job he ever had to do so you I mean, again no details but it was just kind of like one of those things where it was just like man i saw enough steven seagal for a lifetime i've heard some stories there were some good times on there <laughs> all right chris why don't you take us into our next letter here all right uh lenar clark of baytown missouri writes in to ask about a proposed daredevil storyline that never happened Dear Magic Words, in an article in Wizard 65, Carl Kessel said that he had an idea for taking Daredevil, a title he was writing on at the time, in an entirely new direction, but also said that his plan hadn't yet been approved. Well, Kessel is now gone, so what was his big new direction going to be? Lenar Clark, Raytown, Missouri. So the answer, the Wizard's answer was, are you sitting down? You better be. Kessel wanted Matt Murdock, Daredevil's alter ego and highly respected lawyer in the Marvel Universe, to become the mayor of New York. Marvel decided this would have had too many rep percussions across too many marvel titles and nix the idea and what do you think of that chris would you have been up for matt murdoch as mayor of new york i think it would have been interesting i wasn't really at that time big into daredevil i always liked him when he like showed up in other people's comics but i never followed him myself like the whole frank miller thing i sort of missed everything was hit and miss those stories were always sold out so i never really got the great stories about daredevil i mean it would have been interesting i think daredevil's mayor of new york is actually a cool concept but there's times when Kingpin knew Daredevil is Matt Murdock, so that would have been an interesting thing if, like, Kingpin didn't know Matt Murdock, so he's having to deal with him all the time. Oh, like, yeah. in the political year, that could have been some cool story writing. But again, New York's such a pivotal Marvel Universe location that could have caused issues throughout the titles, like they said. I can see how that could have been a problem. Yeah, and it feels like maybe it doesn't fit for this era of comic storytelling, but in just a few years, we get uh, Brian K. Vaughn's Ex Machina, which is basically that same concept. What if a superhero became mayor of New York? Maybe it was something that after the Kevin Smith run, they could have done with Marvel Knights or something. I don't know. As we close out here, though, Andy Shaw of Comanche, Iowa, follows up on another unpublished story that he wants answers about here. So that's one of those disappointments. Dear Wizard, when is that Batman Gen 13 crossover you were talking about coming out? And Jim McLaughlin says, the 12th of never. Due to the fact that the proposed Bat Penciler, J. Scott Campbell, is now grooving on his new creator-owned Danger Girl title, the idea has been tanked and replaced by a Superman Gen 13 project project slated for late 1998 look for adam hughes to handle art chores that superman gen 13 project does actually happen as a mini series but i still think it's a shame we never got that batman because i just feel like that batman is a much better foil for gen 13 because he's so no nonsense and they're kind of ridiculous so <laughs> did you read the superman gen 13 crossover so i have not read it but i have all of the issues. So I've been saving them up. They will be covered on a future half episode whenever Wizard actually reports on that, whether, because I can't remember if it did actually come out in 98 or if it's uh, closer to 99. So did you read it? Yes. 
I don't remember anything about it except the art was really beautiful and it was Superman being Superman. Yeah, it had some cool covers. Steven Sapelis, previously mentioned, actually gave me this Gen 13 Superbad promotional poster from a comic book shop that he used in his pilot for a TV series he was trying to launch a long time ago. It was actually, it was set with at this little comic book convention. So he had all this, you know, ephemera that he had been collecting. So anyway, that was fun. But we've read the letters and now we're going to find out what's going on in the news with... All right, so our top story this issue, Soldier of Fortune, reports that just after relaunching Captain America, The Wake of Heroes Reborn, Mark Wade will be writing a second monthly comic starring Marvel's super soldier titled Captain America, Sentinel of Liberty. Says Wade, quote, I look at it as a tip of the hat to the success of Captain America, and I take it as a vote of confidence. This is a title for those fans who can't get enough of Cap. Joining Wade on the book will be Andy Kubert, with whom the writer had succeeded successfully relaunched Kazar the year before, a title both of them would be leaving with issue 14. The artist explains, quote, Cap's my dream, so I had to do it. Wizard consults Wade's artist on the main Captain America title, Ron Garney, who gives his reaction to the news, quote, why water down the franchise with a barrage of Cap stuff? That was the first thing I thought. But the longer I thought, the more I realized it could be a great vehicle to launch Cap stories that may not fit into the regular series. As long as we do good work, we can't lose. So Chris, I'm curious, how do you feel about comics characters having multiple titles being published simultaneously? Superman, Batman, Spider-Man at this time especially had so many titles. Do you like that or do you feel like it should just be a single title and they focus their energy on that? Well, back then I didn't mind it as much because each title sort of felt like its own individual thing a lot of times. We sort of hit that with the Death of Superman series a little before this of when they started getting convoluted. Now you had to pick up every single title to know what was going on in the next one. That's when it starts to get sort of problematic. Like, I mean, then you have to buy four issues in a week just to pay attention to what's going on for the one storyline. I guess that's when I got irritated by it, but I think it's fine because you can have different writers and different stories sort of going and appealing to the different types of fans of those characters. Yeah, I feel like the publishers wouldn't be doing it if it wasn't profitable, but at the same time, they never seem to learn their lesson. Because, I don't know, I hear constantly from fans that, hey, whenever they do these giant crossovers, that's when I drop the book, or I stop buying until it's over. But is that true for the majority? Because they keep doing it, because I guess people are still buying them. So it, it's one of those things where I, I see, like, multiple titles in my mind, like, I could understand maybe a second title, but when you get to, like, four or beyond that to me that's kind of insane but like even like with the x-men i don't understand why there has to be x-men and uncanny x-men like that that never made sense at this time to me like i, I can understand when it's jim lee doing the book but after that just cancel x-men and keep uncanny x-men going you know like there's no reason it does, it's not special anymore same with spider-man you know eventually they kind of rebranded it and all of that but when todd mcfarlane's gone that title is not special anymore he, they started it for him you know so that's kind of where I, I fall on that. Well, I think with the X-Men, um, the reason it, uh, like having a couple X-Men books makes sense is because it felt like there was about a thousand X-Men at the time. So have- <laughs> I understand <laughs> if you're different classes of X-Men, you know, so you have Generation yeah. X or you have Excalibur where they're, you know, in Europe or whatever. But again, like so many titles for this team that all live in the same mansion, that's where it feels a little crazy to me. Yeah, and you got Wolverine in every book. Yeah. 
<laughs> How does he get around? He's borrowing Jamie Madrox's powers. Speaking of Wolverine, though, why don't you take us into this next story? In what was surely big news at the time, Claremont returns to Wolverine, Adamantium may follow, reports that with issue 125 of Wolverine, legendary X-Men writer Chris Claremont will be penning the adventures of Marvel's most popular mutant. Says Claremont, the occasion of this issue is Wolverine's birthday, so Logan deals with what he's always had to deal with on his birthday, a person who's out to kill him. It's an established character from Wolverine's past with an axe to grind. But what Wizard really wants an answer to is whether or not Claremont will be writing the tale of how Wolverine gets his adamantium back in his bones says the writer the question will be resolved once and for all in this issue at least as far as i'm concerned because once and for all is an extraordinarily flexible term in comics <laughs> so uh does claremont writing an x-men related title get you excited to read a book adam i yeah like i feel like you had to be reading x-men in the 80s to say like i could recognize all the groundwork he laid and all the great work he did in in really like fleshing out that universe but i think by the time x-men came around it was time for him to go because i've gone back and read scattered issues from like the late 80s and i'm just like the guy was out of steam and he's so very wordy like (laughs) his word balloons are so large you know he had so much text to everything and so he kind of wears me out when I read a Claremont story. So like, I know his reputation, but if I see him writing something, I don't run to that book. Like there's no urgency for me, but where do you fall on Chris Claremont fandom? I'll pick him up if I see it and it looks interesting. A lot of times the art has to go with the story because he did all that writing for uh, Jim Lee when Jim Lee's original run, right? Yeah. And like Jim Lee's art was so amazing and claremont's story writing with that art just i think them working together i liked it a lot but claremont is hit or miss for me i've seen i've read some of his newer stuff and it doesn't really jump out at me but there's a series called gen next that he did and it was sort of like a future new mutant style team and i thought that was really good or it was at the time i enjoyed it so it depends on how excited it feels like he is for the story yeah well what's interesting to me is like you know because i i've talked to you know big x-men fans and and they kind of say like well he started coming back during this era and we're going to read a little bit more about that here but he was just doing a lot of stuff at marvel again and but a lot of people said ultimately it disappointed but see for me like john byrne not that they're in opposition they were partners but then they kind of you know disagreed with each other at a certain point like anytime john byrne does something then i am interested so it's just like i just find his style of storytelling and his cleverness a little bit more appealing so anyway let's get into something else here real quick though classic super costume returns in april announces that alex ross is painting seven new images of clark kent transforming into the man of steel that will combine into a moving lenticular cover for the 84 page superman forever one shot but In classic Alex Ross style, he's doing it his way. Quote, he's going to be the kingdom come Superman, minus the gray at the temples. And as for what's inside, Dan Juergens reveals, quote, it serves as the kickoff of the 60th anniversary of Superman. And I can't think of a better way to do it than to return to his classic look and the elements that are best recognized with the character. So yes, this is marking the end of the energy-based blue and or red Superman, which has just made a return now in 2023. Everybody's excited about this John Kent version. But this is a one shot. It's a single story. It's drawn and written in segments 
by the various creative teams that handled Superman like over the prior 20 years. So just all throughout his publishing history, what are these creative teams? They're back together for a few pages. So you get people like John Byrne and Carl Kiesel and Dan Jurgens, Walter Weezy Simonson and all these different people that were involved with him. So did you ever read Superman Forever? And would you say, do you like the status quo of Superman going back? Or do you feel like you'd love a, a new incarnation that sticks? I read Superman Forever about two hours ago. <laughs> uh, I went and dug it out of my long box. I don't remember ever reading it, so I sat there to read it. I like Superman in the classic look. I mean, it's it's neat to do some crazy stuff. That's my favorite thing about Superman is all these artists and writers that have just put their own flavor on him. He's been around so long. It's like, I like to see how other people deal with them as long as they can try to keep like the core values of who Superman is intact. You can do the red and blue or all that type of thing because you know it's not going to stay around. You know he's always going to go back to the, the big blue Boy Scout. Yeah, I, I will say that I, I'm kind of like you. I had Superman forever in my log box for quite a while and had never read it. And then I finally read it and I liked it. I actually liked it better than the wedding issue because they were very similar. And then it's like, oh, let's bring in all the supporting cast. Let's bring back these artists that worked on it and stuff like that. And I just felt like this one was more cohesive because it's got this running story about Lex Luthor had a daughter with this Contessa and the daughter has been kidnapped, but the Contessa is supposedly dead. But he's like, no, she's not dead. She did this to me. And so there's all this stuff going on about trying to find the daughter. In the meantime, you know, Superman is kind of coming back uh, to being himself again and he keeps showing up in his classic costume and other superheroes and people in Metropolis are like hey look at you back to normal it's hard to keep track of you you know <laughs> so but I, I thought it was a really fun story I enjoyed it but I personally I don't know like I don't particularly care for his supporting cast like Lois yes I like Lois but everybody else is kind of hit or miss for me overall I do like better Superman one shots like when Dan Jurgens did like the super Superman aliens thing like I thought that was a cool story like put him in a situation that's new and dangerous to him for like a single story I like that but the the soap opera of Superman doesn't usually play for me because they focus too much on supporting characters like this weird guy from the bottle city of Candor, I think who's got like these horns and he's blue and he's dating a blind girl but her dad doesn't want her to but she's got goggles that can make her see for like 15 minutes a day or something I was just like what is this <laughs> like what is this story it's bizarre. Yeah, I'll say uh, I do like Superman. I don't read him regularly, so I'll go on a run. So basically, it's like, oh, I sort of like this creative team, and they're doing something interesting. So I'll follow it as long as that creative team's around, and then I might drop it for a bit. So during this period of time, I wasn't really into Superman. So reading this story, there was a lot of characters and storylines that it was referencing that I didn't really know what was going on. But I did enjoy the first half of the book of Superman coming back and everybody trying to get a feel for what's going on and Lois and him being reunited. I thought that was a good piece of that story. Did you like at the end where it had those short like pages where it was teasing some future issues of alternate reality or future Supermans? Did you see that? Yeah, I did. It was interesting because it was like I wasn't quite sure what was going on on it. But Superman's one of those ones you can just bust open and read. They can be fun. And that's what I like in a comic sometimes. It's just fun. Yeah, for sure. Especially if you find, you know, some old Silver Age stuff in a back issue bin for cheap and you're just like, man, this is wild. <laughs> That's what I was collecting in the 90s. I was buying old Superman stuff and I was just like, this is not Why is he shooting rainbows out of his fingers? <laughs> we were talking previously about the cool 90s swag. I had a big stack of Superman Forever pieces with an individual 
pieces of each of the lenticulars that you could actually line up on the wall. Wow. Because just again, Alex Ross art in any form, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, but hey, uh, take us into this next story because we're going to hear uh, some names that are going to be continuing throughout this issue to pop up. <laughs> so a shakeup is occurring in the Marvel bullpen as Marvel dumps Lobdell, taps Claremont for FF. Wizard reports that after just three issues, Marvel has fired Scott Lobdell for his writing duties on Fantastic Four and brought in veteran Marvel scribe Chris Claremont to replace him. Editor-in-Chief Bob Harris explains, Scott wanted to go in a different direction, and he expressed desire to do other projects. We really wanted someone to dedicate their time to FF. Chris was willing, able, and excited to go there. What does Lobdell think of the situation? Says the writer, this is exactly what Marvel did to me with Uncanny number 350. I wanted to do 50 issues of FF, but I guess they didn't want me. Wizard reveals that despite ill will concerning Fantastic Four, Lobdell is looking forward to tackling Daredevil. Lobdell's story features Matt Murdock working undercover for S.H.I.E.L.D. in France. So do you- <laughs> now, is, the, is that better than Mayor of New York? Come on. <laughs> I don't know. I, I think I'd enjoy the Mayor of New York a little better. So do you think a writer should have free reign when he's assigned a book by a publisher? Or do you think that having editorial guidance ultimately helps that project? Mm, here's the thing. Like, I, there's so many examples that we have from the 90s of creator-owned books that were terrible. They were good at one thing, but not the other, right? And yep. they go they go a little bit too far, uh, you know, into their creative direction without realizing maybe how it affects the storytelling. So I do feel the editorial guidance is necessary, but I feel it should be like, not like dictatorial. Like it really feels like Marvel at this time is like, no. This is what the editors decided. Write the stories we outline for you versus, well, let's talk about it. Let's like, let's break a story together. That's pretty cool. Yeah, we're on the same page. Good. Okay. Let's go with that. You know, because I don't know. It just feels like when they do leave creators alone, like I'm sure Mark Wade was not getting a lot of editorial stuff. They're like, we trust you. Go for it. And then you get something like Fantastic Four. We're like, oh, well, we love this you know books so much these characters are coming back we got to do it right and then they say no your story's not going to work scott get out of here (laughs) exactly i mean i will say i think it's i think it's better like you got to expect when you're working on one of the like big marvel titles daredevil ff or any of the million spider-man comics (laughs) that are going to be constrained somewhat on what you can do with them because it will affect so much but like i think giving them the reins a little bit on maybe a power pack or, or alpha flight or like a store maybe a book that's not selling well during the time and needs a shakeup and needs something creative and it's not going to affect the rest of the rest of the marvel universe in such a big way i think that can be when you can see some writers really shine with some of the stuff they want to do take sleepwalker let's do something with that <laughs> uh, do you, uh, i had the other question did you ever find out what lobdell's ideas were for fantastic four I feel like that's got to come up at some point. Like somebody, again, is going to ask in the letters column, hey, did you talk to Scott Lovedell? What What did he want to do? Because it's so blatant here. So I, I think down the road, we should keep an eye out for that. But no, I'm not sure. Only to say, though, that, you know, what he says this is exactly what Marvel did to me with Uncanny 350. So he plotted it 
And then Stephen T. Siegel came in and wrote it because the letter is like, oh, the guy who wrote issue 350 of Uncanny X-Men, but he didn't write it. He just he just scripted it, which is a difference. At least I feel like Rob Liefeld loves to make that distinction. You know, he's like, I'm a plotter. I'm a storyteller. And then I get these guys to write the words for me, but they're nothing. (laughs) So, all right, Chris, actually, why don't you give us our next piece here, too, because this is a fun one. All right, Wizard pulled their AOL users this month to ask, what comic character would you want at your side in a no-rules street brawl? Fans are split in awarding both Batman and Wolverine each with 28% of the vote, while Captain America received 13%. Spawn earned 12%, Punisher scored 7%, Bane just received 4%, and Sabretooth brought up the rear with 3%. The other category was made up 5% of the vote. So who would you have selected as your partner in a final fight style beat-em-up scenario, Adam? Yeah, I mean, I I look at this list and I don't know, like, I feel like Batman and the Punisher, like, they're not super powered. They're good fighters and I'm sure they could neutralize a bunch of guys. But I just, I if I want a brawler, I'm thinking Lobo right out of the gate. I want Lobo next to me because he's just going to clean house, you know? (laughs) He may not protect me. He may not be my wingman, but he's just going to decimate everybody. So I might just have to get a few punches in and I'm okay. So Lobo would be my choice. None of these jabronis. (laughs) What about you? Well, at the time, I would have probably been Savage Dragon would have probably been up there, but I I think I would have settled with Wolverine. You see, it's funny you mentioned the Punisher is like, I don't know why you're in this. Uh, did you ever read any of the Punisher Max series? No, I, I never got into those. The Garth Ennis did one and there was a Punisher and Wolverine crossover that was super vicious. And Punisher ends up, spoilers for a 20 year old book, I guess, shooting Wolverine in the face with a shotgun and then running him over with a steamroller. <laughs> wow. it, it was insane like cartoon level violence and done in Garth Ennis style. It was hilarious. It's worth checking out if you ever get a chance. Yeah, that, that sounds wild. But that's what I'm saying. Like Punisher needs all his gadgets. If you take all the gadgets away from him, I'm sure he's a good hand-to-hand fighter, but I don't think he's going to last very long, you know? So, well, yeah, especially not against Lobo. No. <laughs> All right, our next story here, uh, this is really interesting. We posted the basis for this news story recently on our social media, and people came out in droves telling us their memories of it. Anti-Green Lantern fans sling expensive campaign reports on the grassroots campaign launched by staunch Hal Jordan Green Lantern advocate Jack Grimes to bring the Silver Age hero back and reinstate the Green Lantern Corps. Grimes calls his organization HEAT which stands for Hal's Emerald Attack Team. And he has actually purchased ads in Wizard and other comics publications to rally support for his cause. Says Grimes, quote, Green Lantern is broken and hasn't been fixed yet. Spider-Man fans got Peter Parker back after the clone story. Batman was broken and the fans will fixed it. We hope that someday every Green Lantern fan can be happy again. Now, Grimes doesn't just want to see Kyle Rayner moved out of the spotlight, but the scribe that created this fan favorite character, quote, I don't like Mars's work on Green Lantern. I don't want to see him unemployed, but I would like to see someone else take the reins. So what does Ron Mars think about this organized fan outcry? Well, quote, nobody is making people read Green Lantern if they don't want to. It's been four years. Maybe they should stop making themselves crazy. 
Writing comics is my livelihood and I take great pride in it, but it's not my world. It's not my whole life. Other things matter more. Hal Jordan is dead. Let him rest in peace. (laughs) So, I mean, this is interesting. And of course, you know, a lot of people were pointing out like this is kind of the beginning of toxic, you know, fanboy comic culture, you know, all the Zack Snyder and all that kind of stuff kind of started here, according to a lot of folks. But yeah, just the idea that Ron Mars even mentions like, you know, all the money you're spending on this ad could have been donated to a charity. It would be much better spent, you know, but this is not something that matters. You know, (laughs) It's entertainment. So that makes me wonder, Chris, how involved do you think fandom should be in dictating the direction of artistic consumer products like comics or a popular series of novels or movies? Like, should the publishers and studios be listing or do you think people maybe just need to back off? Some people take a little, uh, little over the top. My motto is, oh, that's just not for me. And then I move on to something else because I love a lot of different things. I'm not like the world's biggest any one thing fan. I'm a comics fan. So sometimes stories aren't for me. And if I give it time, they're going to come back. And then I'm going to, I'll get into a story that I do like. It is crazy to me sometimes because fans think that, and I shouldn't say fans because sometimes they're not fans. Sometimes they're just people that want to be loud about something. Yeah. I think that the publishers or the creators are just pedoing uh, property. And they don't have the number. They don't understand that there's other people that may be looking at this properties and they're bringing in new people for the future. And somebody may have a story that it really talks to them. So they're going to be in there. Like this guy's saying, like, I want all Green Lantern fans to be happy again. It's like, well, there's a lot of Green Lantern fans buying Green Lantern because of Kyle Rayner. And it's a very popular book at this time. So you are grumpy that your favorite guy from the last 30 years is gone. But it's one of those things where you're just kind of like, I mean, (laughs) yes, they could peaceably coexist, bring back Hal eventually, which they do in a very roundabout way. But, But it's just one of those things where it's just like, you're one opinion isn't the only opinion just because you feel this way doesn't mean there's this huge majority that's with you how did you feel about uh Kyle Rayner did you were you reading any of that at the time I only read him when he teamed up with the Ray in a one shot that Rod Mars wrote that I really liked because I was a big fan of the Ray but like I just I was never a Green Lantern guy so either way didn't matter to me like I thought it was cool like I loved his design like I thought he looked awesome but it there was never anybody in my sphere that was saying you gotta read this Green Lantern nobody told me it was like a great book yeah, I was a fan of, well, I liked Alan Scott. I liked Kyle Jordan. I enjoyed Kyle. I didn't have the most, I wasn't the most excited about some of his costume. I liked the Hal Jordan costume better, but again, it was fun. I mean, and like I say, I mean, it's, it's certainly not for everybody, but for what they did with him during his time, you know, heading up the title, I think it was a pretty nice direction and a, a nice arc from that. Cause I have gone back and read quite a bit of it now. And I'm like, no, it's, it's a good character. There, there's some fun stuff here. So the biggest story in this issue is the first look at Fathom by Michael Turner containing a few sketches and one finished art piece. The artist explains, I've been working on this for a year and a half. After every Witchblade deadline is finished, I just do a little bit on this. Now it's showtime. Like nearly every new comic being promoted at this time, Turner describes the series as similar to the X-Files. I'm a fan of the show, and I think the appeal is that they only reveal small bits and pieces each time. As for the main character of Aspen, Turner reveals, 
She's got water-based abilities, but I guarantee she ain't just a female Aquaman. This is Turner's first creator-owned work that he will also be writing because I have to grow as a creator. As for what this new series means for his star-making work on Witchblade, the artist promised, I'm still very involved in Witchblade, and I'm not going to ditch the book where I started. Witchblade is still my baby. I'm just having another baby. So did any of us read Fathom or just look at the pretty pictures? What about you, Adam? Yeah, it was definitely one of those books that I saw come out, like, because I knew of Witchblade, and then I saw this new book, Fathom, which has scantily clad women coming out of the water on every cover, seemingly. And I was just like, what is this book? Like, it didn't have anything that pulled me in. Like, it didn't look super interesting. Now, I have read it, at least the first, like, five issues at this point. And I'm like, hmm... I mean, I think the art is what was selling this book because it's like you know, a lot of undersea, you know, mythology and all this stuff. But it, I, I wasn't pulled in even now. So where do you fall on Michael Turner? I like Michael Turner stuff, this whole Top Cow universe. So I remember the hype of Fathom coming out and like the comics. This is the time when I'm starting to actually have subscriptions of things in comic shops. And I remember getting Fathom. I could not really tell you anything about the story. I remember I enjoyed it at the time, but I never, I've never revisited it. So that sort of tells me how much I was into it. Exactly. Um, right. Yeah. <laughs> if I remember right, it was pretty wordy, wasn't it? Like, yeah. It was a, lot, a lot of words, but not a lot of things happening. It was very slow. Yeah. It was just like, again, it's kind of how I felt about Witchblade 2 when we talked about that a while back. It's just like, it's like soap opera comics. It's a bunch of pretty people posed and standing around dramatically, but there's really not a lot of action and not a lot of like interesting plot developments. It's just kind of like, oh, well, this person's a little moody today. This person's a little angry today. <laughs> I was just like, and maybe down the line, it, I, all I know is that I see it in, you know, back issues bids for very cheap now so i know a lot of people bought it that a lot of people ditched it uh, but speaking of the pretty pictures newsflash this is a guy gardener's gimmicks a go-go special report how bizarre Yes, we're bringing back that long-lost segment because the naked truth, nude covers are out, reports that Lightning Comics and London Night Studios, who made a name for themselves in the mid-90s by producing the first nude variant covers, are bearing all about putting this sales gimmick to rest. Says Fred Cooper of London Night Studios about the initial reaction to these scandalous variants, quote, Sales were great. We began to offer more nude covers simply because our customers demanded it. But seeing the end of the trend on the horizon four years later, Cooper explains, quote, We could take nude editions only so far before we get major backlash from the fans and retailers. Enough is enough. Now, Steve Zakowski, publisher of Helena at Lightning Comics, gives his opinion that, quote, Many publishers just threw a nude chip on their cover, our covers were pieces of art. They weren't trashy. I think collectors will look back in time at the comics industry and remember the era of nude covers and try to collect them. I can see a future market for them. <laughs> now this is an amazing prediction to me. Just this idea of naked covers. Now, my comic shop certainly carried them. I remember they had like four rows uh, um, on their wall of comics. 
and the very top was where they kept all you know the adult books and stuff like that so they were definitely up there in their black poly bags and whatever but what do you think about this chris it, do you think like that the market that was into bad girls the market that was out there buying these nude covers does that still exist do you think there's a like a group out there that is really pursuing these in any great numbers a hundred percent he was a prophet seeing the future market for him because really? I, a lot of different comic collecting groups and stuff and i know a number of people that well because variants are such a big thing now of course the nude variant is just another version of them and i don't know i don't get the uh they were never my thing. I never brought them home. Uh, my wife would not, at the time, would not have been a uh, fan of me having those anyway. And like a lot of times, like it brings up Helena at Lightning Comics. And I've thumbed through a Helena before. As much as I love 90s comics, I wasn't impressed with some of these, uh, some of these back in the day when they're using the new cover gimmicks, because I think that was their prime gimmick to try to get people to buy their comics. Yeah, so it's really all they had. And that's the thing. So we have been doing this series, this bonus series with popgeeks.com, where uh, we were connected with the folks at Xenoscope Entertainment. If anybody has been watching our bonus episodes, you know that Michael is a gigantic fan of the, their output. Now, my perception of what they did was that they just did nude covers and sexy cheesecake covers and i just assumed everything inside was the same thing but as we've been going through the series like yes they do offer those but really their storytelling has nothing to do with that like it is a gimmick just to get people's eyes on their books in some level and hopefully somebody opens the cover and sees oh Okay, there's some pretty clever twists on old fairy tale characters we weren't expecting. So I do want to know if Michael ever invested in the full dude covers, though. He's going to have to reveal that one of these days. <laughs> but hey, we've covered the news. Now we're going to get into the meat of this issue. There's a lot of fun stuff. So we're going to check out our table of contents. Wizard 79 with a March 1998 cover date featured two covers. The first was an X-Men piece by the new Uncanny X-Men artist Chris Bocciolo, which originally featured a much larger roster of Marvel's mutants, but then was just cut back to the original five founding members of the team. Now, the other cover was an Ascension cover by David Finch and Bot from Top Cow, which featured a female character in a thong initially. I'm going to read this here from the Wizard Big Book of Covers as to why there was a revision on this one. It says, When the final art arrived for the cover, our sales department did a double take. Turns out the young lady, Andromeda, crouching next to Lucian, wore a thong so thin you could floss with it. The topic of most German websites. Come on, wizard. We asked the colorist to extend the thong into more of a bikini bottom in an effort to prevent problems with the more conservative retail outlets that carry wizard. So, yeah. Just pushing it a little too far uh, with that cover. The issue came packed really with only one insert, only one extra item, but it was a doozy for fans of J. Scott Campbell, Humberto Ramos, and of course, Joe Mad. We've talked about them at length the last few episodes because there was a sketchbook for Cliffhanger Comics, and it previewed the characters from Battle Chasers, Danger Girl, and Crimson. The only other thing in this issue was a mail-away offer for a Silver Surfer half-comic. So they were all in with Marvel and DC now. They could get these big titles for their half-comics. Have you ever picked any up in your travels, or did you ever send away for one, Chris, for the halves? I have a number of half-issues, mainly just 
picking them up from comic shows and like flea markets and such. I have a couple copies of like Mac half. They're just one of those things where if I see them and they're in a dollar bin, I'll grab them regardless of what the title is. I don't know why, because I like to hoard things, I guess. <laughs> um, but I have a I have a handful of them. Um, I don't remember ever sending in for one. I did send in for like some action figures from Toy Fair one time, but that's about as far as it went for buying things from directly from Wizard. Yeah, it's so interesting for me because like at the time I would read Wizard cover to cover, like I loved it, but I never felt a need to enter contests or mail in anything for a half comic. Like what they were giving me was enough. Like I never needed the extras, like the entertainment on the pages was enough. So, you know, we have them now in the archives because I, yeah, I, I've been able to pick some up over the years, but also find like I, I found a big lot of them like somebody had sold their comic collection or it got donated to a thrift store and they had a huge pile of like wizard half issues and zero issues and pack-in issues and sketchbooks and all this stuff so that was awesome but yeah it's uh it's interesting but why don't you take us into our first cover story here chris all right the first cover story is the wizard q a Team X-Men is an interview with newly promoted X-Men writer Joe Kelly and Stephen T. Siegel about how they will be collaborating on the two most highest profile X-Men books. When asked about their individual takes on X-Men, Siegel responds, they are the heroes who get no credit for what they do. The Avengers get the publicity, thanks and kudos, but the X-Men, half the world doesn't know that they're here and the other half of the world that does hates them. Kelly, on the other hand, sees them as the ultimate dysfunctional family, just trying to make their way in a really tough world. The pair do drop the bombshell that the roster will change dramatically in the books when Joe Kelly teases that the X-Men that you see at the beginning of the year, I don't think are going to be the X-Men at the end of the year. So uh, what's your favorite setup for the X-Men stories? Militaristic mutant freedom fighters going on missions to defend their fellow mutants? Or school of oppressed misfits that get pulled into action scenarios to defend themselves? Intergalactic adventurers saving the world? I know there's so many forms that the stories have taken over the years, right? And listeners know I've never been deep in X-Men. Like it's never been like my big passion, but I always liked the setup of the original X-Factor. I loved the concept of, okay, we're undercover mutants going to save other mutants. Like I loved that whole concept. Now, whether or not it was like delivered perfectly, like truly interesting, that maybe that's up for debate for some, but I have those early issues and I'm like, this is pretty cool, actually. Like, like I like that. I'm not so much into the drama and the soap opera at the mansion and all like the hookups and all that kind of stuff doesn't appeal to me. But what about you? So you're speaking my language. X Factor was actually my favorite X-Men stories. I have almost the whole run of that x-factor series i'm just missing a few towards the very very end yeah i like scott gene bobby warren and hank that's the team of x-men i love so i i like those early stories like we talked about the 90s were sort of my bread and butter for x-men those early 90s so the portacio uh, uncanny x-men and jim lee's x-men and the era around that before and after were sort of where all my uh X love was I, I guess what it is is i just like them to be a little bit more proactive and not being attacked all the time you know? so it's just like hey we're gonna we're gonna go do some good with our powers and we're gonna figure something out and yeah well you know we're gonna try to make a difference but uh, going on in here it's kind of interesting as far as like what was the status quo what they're gonna change because it says when asked about what direction they're gonna take the books during their run the x writers say that in contrast to the high adventure stories of scott Lobdell 
Lobdell, theirs will be smaller interpersonal stories. Now, about Lobdell's contribution to the X-Universe, Bob Harris chimes in saying, quote, Scott took an enormous challenge. He took over the book after Chris Claremont's 17-year run, and he did what I asked him to do, keep the franchise as the number one franchise. I would not have had Scott on X-Men for seven years if I didn't like what he was doing. However, later in the interview, editor Mark Powers reveals that, quote, Scott Lobdell would introduce an idea that he wasn't quite sure how he would finish. Many times, it took him to a place that was exciting to the readers. Of course, that leaves it open to the fact that maybe that wasn't true for somebody. Maybe there were a lot of dangling plot threads that uh, somehow got resolved that suddenly became, you know, onslaught <laughs> when, you know, that something was just a mystery, you know, a year or so before. So I don't think he was planning every little detail, but did you continue reading after that Jim Lee era? So do you have like an opinion on the Scott Lobdell run? I remember trying to pick up bits and pieces of it. And I remember reading some of it. I can't keep, I don't know that I had any major opinion on that run. It was like, there's some interesting characters, I think that were introduced during that time. But again, that was sort of an era where I, for the X-Men, I wasn't following regularly. It was just, I'd pick up, oh, this issue looks like it has a cool cover. I'll pick it up. I think there was, was he the writer when Bastion was sort of a big character? Yeah. So he was like, that was like right at the end of his run with the Operation Zero Tolerance and all of that. Yeah. I remember that and I kind of, I remember liking it. I can't tell you anything about the story because it's been so long since I've read it, but I remember, I remember liking some of those story arcs, but I didn't read all of them. Yeah. What I find hilarious about the X-Men is they're always trying to find a way to get rid of Professor X. So like during Operation Zero Tolerance, you know, like he is like locked away in this facility by Bastion and he's blocked. So like they can't find him, you know, Gene can't do any telepathic scanning for him. You know, before that, he's a villain. He's turned into Onslaught. He's kind of going crazy. But, you know, at, there was that time he's up in space with the Shi'ar. Like they're always just trying to get him out of the mansion so the kids can play without him. You know, it just cracks me up. <laughs> or he becomes Professor McGuffin and he becomes, they have to go rescue him from somewhere. Yes. <laughs> Let's continue on with this article because it is lengthy. They had a lot to say here. When asked about their favorite characters, Joe Kelly declares, as a kid, Nightcrawler, because he was cool, creepy looking and funny. But today I love writing Maggot and Marrow. They're still so new and it's like my contribution to this larger thing. Steven Seagal chooses Rogue. She surprises me the most. I never expected to enjoy writing her and I find myself liking it more and more. As for their least favorite, Kelly Seglek's Dazzler. I don't get the roller skates. Why Seagal <laughs> blurring a thousand fanboys' hearts by naming Psylocke. I wish she was dead. She was British once and became a ninja assassin. I don't get it. Asked to pick the winner of an X-Men Battle Royale, both writers agree that Wolverine is the last mutant standing. Finally, asked to declare which X-Men is most like them, the writers reveal that they're even more in sync by naming Cannonball, since he's the new guy. As a kid, who was your favorite X-Men? Because, like, I was right there with Nightcrawler. Like, I literally, like, drew Nightcrawler for school projects. But that's just because the first comic I bought was a Marvel Tales that was Spider-Man and Nightcrawler. And then an issue of Excalibur that had Nightcrawler on the cover. So, like, he was my guy, like, right at the beginning. So everybody says Cyclops isn't anybody's favorite. But, like, he was my favorite as a kid. I don't know why. I think it's because he's. I was the oldest kid in my family. So sort of having that supposed to be a leader, but not quite sure yourself. And I really, I, I could relate to Cyclops. And so he was always the one I chose for the X-Men. 
Uh, it's great to get into the psyche of a Cyclops fan because that makes so much sense. Like I'm the baby in my family, you know, so like I, I did, definitely did not have that experience. So that, that would make sense. All right. Um, now, closing out here, though, when asked about how they hope fans will describe their contributions, Joe Kelly says, quote, I hope they will say it was really fun. I would like to know that fans remember particular scenes that made them smile or laugh. While Steven Siegel adds, quote, I just hope somebody who loves X-Men like I love X-Men is talking to you in 20 years and says, that Siegel Kelly run was great. If that happens, I did my job. And for what we hear on social media, that is definitely the case. A lot of you have said this was a great time for you in reading X-Men, but you you are also citing editorial interference that ruined the Siegel Kelly era in the long run. They didn't apparently get to take it where they wanted it to go. But it's just nice to know that, you know, it is fondly looked upon by a lot of fans out there. Hey geeks, it's time to take a break to tell you about our sponsor for this episode, Manscaped. Smooth sack summer is drawn to a close, and that means now is the time to keep your balls cool while still looking hot with Manscaped. Just go to manscaped.com for 20% off plus free shipping with our code WIZARDS20. You know, there's a lot of ball-related heroes in comics. Speedball, that bizarre Marvel Comics villain 8-Ball, the fast ball special from X-Men Comics, but the most important balls are yours, and that's why you need the Power of the Manscaped Performance Package 4.0. It has everything you need to prepare that summer bod. Manscaped has built the ultimate grooming bundle that includes their Lawnmower 4.0 trimmer, which features a cutting-edge ceramic blade to reduce grooming accidents thanks to their advanced skin-safe technology. The Lawnmower 4.0 has a 7,000 RPM motor, a new multifunction on-off switch. It can engage a travel lock and gives you the ability to turn the 4,000 Kelvin LED spotlight on and off when needed for a more precise shave. Gotta see what's going on down there after all. It's also waterproof with a blade that can shear through even the strongest pubes with the precision of Wolverine's adamantium claws. But after you're looking good, you want to feel good by using the Crop Preserver Ball Deodorant to stay cool in the heat. Its soothing aloe vera formula is the best in the business for below-the-waist freshness, and this clear-drying formula will keep you looking good while smelling good. The Manscaped Performance Package 4.0 also includes two free gifts, the Manscaped boxers and the Shed travel bag. While it's still warm enough to rock those sandals, you'll also want to use the Shears 2.0, a luxury nail grooming kit to keep your nails looking great. This kit includes stainless steel nail cutters, tweezers, and grooming scissors. With the Performance Package 4.0, your balls will be ready to impress, but make sure you cover the rest with the Shears 2.0. So what are you waiting for, geeks? Get 20% off plus free shipping with the code WIZARDS20 at manscaped.com. That's 20% off plus free shipping with the code wizards20 at manscaped.com have a ball being a grooming hero this summer and looking your best with manscaped hey geeks looking for something different than another reality shattering crossover from the big two do you want a self-contained sci-fi thriller with a dash of superpowered excitement then above the grave a graphic novel by mitchell hall and andrew de silva should be at the top of your reading pile and it's available to download now on amazon.com here's what above the grave is all about in mako the supervillain prison of the world located underground in the nambian desert no one finds redemption or can they 
Follow the adventures of New Warden Rick Mastertine as he deals with a prison break by rogues such as shape-shifting Mr. Twister, luck-manipulating Russian Roulette, sentient lethal banyan tree Divine, and brilliant Chimera Crocitus. Rick must also discover the true secret of Mako and come to terms with his own personal history while dealing with an action-packed supervillain prison break. Above the Grave is a 136-page graphic novel that's more than just another superhero smackdown book. I read it, and frankly, I couldn't put it down. The reveal of what's going on in Mako and the secret plans of the superpowered inmates are perfectly paced by Hall for maximum intrigue. The black and white art by De Silva is cinematic in scope and perfectly complemented by sharp dialogue from engaging characters. And it really reminded me of the 80s black and white adventure comics, just those indie books from First Comics and Eclipse Comics. It's a story with a more sophisticated edge, but it puts entertainment first. So head on over to Amazon.com to grab your copy of Above the Grave today. You can check our show notes for a link, but strap in for a unique and thrilling adventure in graphic storytelling with Above the Grave. Now back to the show. Now, our next cover story, 8 to the 4, 98, is Wizard's annual attempt to anoint new superstar artists in the pages of the magazine. They gotta have people to promote and draw their covers, after all. So first up are Dave Finch from Top Cow and his co-creator of Ascension Bot. Now, Finch barely manages to admit, (laughs) he's really kind of cagey, that he has aspirations to rise up near the level of acclaim that Jim Lee and their boss, Mark Silvestri, enjoy. But he is doubtful because says Finch, quote, I don't think there are the same opportunities available to do what Jim and Mark did. As for his recent rise to name recognition, Bot explains, quote, Mark was already a legend, basically, and I was just the new guy who was inking him. So I think it took the darkness for people to realize that I was actually on a team with Mark. Now, who are they also spotlighting here, Chris? Next up is Lenil Francis Yu, who went from hopeful artists submitting drawings to the defunct Wizard Drawing Board Contest to getting a break from Wilsh Portatio that led to penciling Wolverine for Marvel. As for his future ambitions, Yu declares, I don't think I can die without doing Batman. But in the meantime, he explains, working with Chris Claremont, there's no bigger honor than that. That's one of the biggest things in my career and something I can brag about. Yeah, because I remember when we posted his drawings, because I think he submitted two different ones, and uh, people were like, oh, that was his early stuff. And for him to go so quickly, you know, to drawing Wolverine, and then Chris Claremont's now taking over, that's got to be amazing for someone that's a fan. The next one here is interesting because this, there's a relatively unknown artist, Leonardo Manco from Argentina, and he He's getting the spotlight after having just begun his professional comics career, penciling Hellstorm and the Werewolf by Night relaunch at Marvel, plus a master dark one-shot for acclaim. So of his style, Menko explains, quote, I try to do movies, not comics. Maybe this is the difference. I try to make compositions in the pages like a big screen in a theater. I don't want to do comics with panels. I want to do movies in the pages. So that's interesting. You know, this guy nobody's heard of, but he's kind of doing these horror comics. Yeah. Next up is the fan favorite, Ed McGinnis, who reveals how he broke into the industry. I found out through word of mouth that the writer of Vampirella actually lives pretty much next door to me. After meeting the writer, he was immediately hired to draw Vampirella. Then after showing samples to Joe Mad at a convention, his drawings went direct to X-Men editor Mark Powers, who hired Ed to draw an X-Men annual and then made him the regular artist on Deadpool. More about McGinnis in our next article. 
A lot of names just keep coming up over and over again. So now a Spanish artist, Salvador Larraca, who went from drawing random issues of Marvel UK titles to Ghost Rider, Excalibur, and The Flash, and then became the artist for the Heroes Reborn The Return miniseries with Peter David, and then, as reported last issue, landed the gig as regular penciler on Fantastic Four, says of his eventual goals, quote, My dream used to be to pencil X-Men, but now it's not important to me. Now, for me, Fantastic Four is the best Marvel book. <laughs> After that, John Cassidy got his break from Mark Wade, who helped him get the gig drawing the Kazar Flashback Month issue, which led to scattered work for DC and Dark Horse, but now is drawing the Desperado series at Homage Comic. Cassidy reveals his secret to getting work. I'm lucky enough to have a style that's become as recognizable as mine. As good as some of the people influenced the market right now are, you get so many clones of these are artist that's really something i'm not in i don't really get it i need to be an individual as an artist now next one here the last one on the list is mexican artist jose ladron who gets the spotlight because his first work was just a 12-page story in marvel's shadow and light anthology he was first noticed by most people though for drawing the spider boy team up one shot in the second wave of amalgam titles this is just one of my favorites from there he got the gig drawing the cable ongoing series his style is described as a mix of Jack Kirby and Mobius, about which he says, quote, Jack Kirby for me was the best superhero artist. With Mobius, I like the simple way he gave ideas in the drawings. It's more casual, more simple. So that leads to the question here, Chris, which of these up-and-coming artists from 1998 do you feel now has the most impressive body of work? Like if you look back, a name you know, books of theirs you've read, who do you think it would be? I think it's Finch. He's done so many different titles for everybody. He's talking about like trying to be Jim Lee, but he'll never be Lee, but he's got as about as close as he could be to it, I think. And I think there's probably fans of Finch more than Lee in some cases because he's done what's he done? He's done Avengers, he's done JLA. There's a bunch of he did a bunch of the ultimate titles, I believe, as well. It's just his his style's fun. I like uh, I like Finch a lot. I always pick up a book if he's the artist on it. Yeah, he's a guy I feel like I hear about all the time, and I bet I recognize a lot of his stuff, but I never like identified him as saying, oh, here's an artist I need to pay attention. So I think just with the popularity of Deadpool, I feel like Ed McGinnis, like going from Deadpool and then doing his brief run elsewhere that we're going to talk about in a second, and then coming back for Hulk and all those things. Like It feels like he, at least for this period, was, was a big draw for a lot of people and especially like Deadpool everybody says hey the Ed McGinnis Joe Kelly run is like the best version of Deadpool that's what they based everything on so I feel like he has a lot of cachet in that way speaking of where Ed McGinnis ended up though Next up, An Awesome Attraction is an exploration of how Rob Liefeld and Jeff Loeb have managed to steal away major talent from Marvel over the last year to work for their new company, Awesome Entertainment. Explaining how they got him to jump from Spider-Man to a Youngblood reboot written by Alan Moore, Steve Scroach explains, quote, Spider-Man is about as secure a job as you can have in this business, but if I'm going to do the work of my life, it's going to be with Alan Moore. And this is something we've heard several times in the last few issues. They just keep using various quotes to that same effect. Now, unfortunately, the work of his life only lasts two full issues before the series is canceled. Now, in contrast to Scroach's excitement, Moore's reaction is a bit more blasé. Quote, it's nice to see someone wants to work with me. If someone's enthusiastic, they're going to do a better job. So the ultimate effects are good. <laughs> now, the bearded Brit was also a draw for famed painter Alex Ross, 
who was convinced to do a fold-out cover of Supreme because, quote, Supreme is the strongest work Alan Moore has done in the last 10 years. This is something I want to be a part of. They're pulling people in, but there's more reasons behind that. So why don't you tell us about that here, Chris? So Ed McGinnis, meanwhile, was convinced to abandon Deadpool for fighting America because the book just wasn't fulfilling anymore. But as Liefeld explains, Ed McGinnis is a Jeff Loeb contact through and through. Loeb's got the silver tongue, and for a portion of the talent, Jeff is a giant draw. McGinnis adds, he really knows how to deliver a speech. It's also noted that production quality plays a big part in the recruiting process. Says Rob, when you're an artist, production of your product matters. If artists aren't satisfied with the final product, they won't be hanging with you very long. So apparently this was the case for Ian Churchill, who is drawing the coven for awesome and praises Jeff and Rob's operation by saying, they pay attention to everything right down to the lettering. I do feel like awesome will bend over backward to make me happy in production. And that's the main thing I need to do my best. Meanwhile, Kaboom creator Jeff Matsuda is most excited about the licensing opportunities that Awesome offers. They're doing a Kaboom toy sculpt as we speak after only three issues, and it should be out by summer. Do you know how cool that is? Yeah, so I mean, this is this is really interesting, the hype and the, you know, the promises and the quality they're delivering. But as for why the revered Alan Moore has signed up for another year on Supreme, he says, quote, working here is a chance to tell the stories that I want to tell. Hands off has certainly been my experience here, and that's really the only way in which I can work properly. But finally, regarding the controversy that usually follows Rob Liefeld's own imprints, Ian Churchill says, quote, controversy that's not a factor rob's a great bloke and as for the lawsuits he generally wins them now doesn't he speaking of rob the guy actually managed to get through an entire interview without making any boisterous comments or promises he would fulfill i mean it really felt like at this point he had turned over a new leaf and it really makes you wonder what happened between then and now i want to know in your opinion you know we talk a lot about rob it's hard not to he's just brought up so often in these pages but if rob liefeld had just stayed on this path publishing comics by other creators like an alternative to image instead of sporadically returning to marvel or producing his own comics that he sometimes was not delivering would we have a different view of him 25 years later or do you think the damage to his reputation was already done by 1998 oh i think we would have had a much better image of him i think that's the issue with rob when a lot of people talk about him is he just never put out enough of any one thing like you never could get behind it because it never felt like it was lasting very long and i think if he could have stayed on the path and publishing comics with other creators having some writers like if he's doing work i think if he would have worked through it we would have maybe uh, had a better opinion like you said but i don't think that's him i think his creativity and his penchant to not want to be told what to do led him to jumping around everywhere so i don't think he could have ever done that yeah it's it's just in his nature i I mean what's interesting i always find about this is that you know they highlight these kind of three people uh you know these artists and, and alan moore over and over again but like Rob was producing some comics called Regex. I think it's supposed to be Regex is what it's supposed to be. But you read it, you're like Regex. What is this? You know, like and, and so it's like, but he never promotes his stuff. Like there'll be an ad in Wizard, but it's never Rob is so excited about his new title. Like I, I feel like Jeff Loeb just told him like, look, 
you need to back it up <laughs> and you, you know, use your name for what good it does out here and use your money. But let me kind of drive this ship. Let me be the, the figurehead in a lot of ways. So, cause like, it doesn't say Rob Liefeld's awesome entertainment or anything like that. You know, it's, there's very little Rob Liefeld in the promotion of that imprint. So let's get into this next one here. Uh, why don't you take us into a very interesting story? Okay, next up is The Whole Story. It's another series of articles by Wizard highlighting small press books, but this one is really underground. Holy Cruelers by Troy Hickman is a black and white, crudely drawn book where superheroes and villains meet at a donut shop to discuss the ins and outs of their lives. Says the creator, There are questions I've had over the years of reading comics. What kind of sex do Mr. Fantastic and the Invisible Woman have? People debate them at cons, but nobody ever puts it in a story. Most mainstream comics are 80% action, 20% characterization. I've reversed that. A sidebar introduces you to some of these neurotic, superpowered individuals with problematic names like Acidic Jew, Mental Midget, and Speeding Bullet. So let me, I'm going to read the profile here for Speeding Bullet, because j- just to give you an idea of how they're describing these characters, okay? So it says here, he can read all the books in a library in seconds, circle the globe in an instant, and scarf down more donuts than an entire precinct of cops. He's the Speeding Bullet, the world's fastest superhero, and his life is a living hell. Besides that, being able to have a normal sex life, the friction, you know? He's thoroughly bored. He's read every book in the library, watched every movie ever made after learning to lip read so he could fast forward through them, and practically memorized every billboard in the country. And when his speed's unable to save a girl trapped in a well, the speeding bullet may just take his own life. You're like, there's a lot going on there with this guy. Wow. But continue, Chris. The the stories are set around two characters talking to each other while sitting in the separate bathroom stalls or searching for a missing hero who is trapped inside a napkin holder at the donut shop. It should be mentioned that Wizard did a full photo shoot for this piece on location at a real diner with their staffers dressed up as brightly colored generic superheroes. Hickman was printing up the books themselves and distributing them by mail order, which may explain why it's impossible to find any record of the series on eBay or even in a digital format online these days. However, the concept got new life in 2003 when Wizard staffer Jim McLaughlin became editor-in-chief of Top Cow, and it was relaunched in 2004 under the name Common Grounds with the setting changed to a coffee shop. Dan Jurgens signed on as a regular series artist, but it also boasted guest artists like George Perez, Sam Keith, J. Scott Campbell, and other big names. Not only that, it was nominated for two Eisner Awards. If wizards like your stuff, there's no telling when and where they could give you a boost. Wow. So does this series setup appeal to you, Adam? Well, I mean, that's the thing. I, I always say I like humor. I like a good take on stuff. And so I could definitely see like the appeal of, okay, well, let's get into, you know, superheroes as if they're like on friends, you know, it's like they're just having these conversations about the problems of their lives and what, what the difficulty of having these powers is. So I could I could definitely see that being entertaining in a lot of ways. But when I look at this art, I am just like, oh, there's no way like in this form that I would have picked it up. And so that's why it's so fascinating to me that like the evolution of this comic, you know, like that it got a second chance, gets resurrected with top name artists, like makes me want to track down those those stories now. Because I think they were kind of indicating that a lot of them maybe were kind of reprinted or revised, you know, and then redrawn by these big artists. So, but Dan Jurgens is your artist, but back when you were just self-publishing this book that nobody knew about, except Jim McLaughlin. (laughs) That's amazing. What about you? 
I like these type of stories. I was a big Powers fan back in the day, and I liked all these slice of life superhero stories where they're just talking like you're you're seeing the flaws and the pieces behind the scenes for a super person. I would have probably enjoyed it if I'd have found it because I do like those underground, crudely drawn, felt like early web comic level books they just have sort their own charm it's sort of interesting because you really have to focus on the story because sometimes the art's just not that great i might have common grounds sitting in one of my long boxes somewhere i'm gonna have to look at my uh look at my list and see if i have one and check it out yeah that'd be cool i'd love to hear your thoughts on that this next article, though, focuses on a book I'm very familiar with. Next Generation is an interview with the new creative team for Gen 13, John Arcudi and Gary Frank, who are taking over following the departure of J. Scott Campbell to do his much-publicized Danger Girl series. So how did the co-creator of The Mask get the gig? Well, Arcudi explains, quote, Apparently Jim Lee saw my major bummer stuff at DC and he either thought I'd work cheap or he actually liked it. Responding to potential fear from the fans that the book will reflect a drastic change, Arcudi says, quote, We weren't hired to fix anything. The fact that it's lighter than the other Wildstorm books is what drives its popularity. These are the sorts of things I like to do in comics anyway. Gary Frank agrees. Quote, I really like the more lighthearted stuff. But, of course, the major differences between the art styles of J. Scott Campbell and Frank are addressed. Quote, Jeff and I have very different ways of drawing, so the book is really going to have a different look. I just hope it doesn't drive people away in droves. Arcudi mentions his desire to write about the unexplained parts of the Gen 13 universe by meeting more of their parents, exploring the true extent of Grunge's ability to morph his body into anything he touches, and discover how they would use their powers in everyday life when not battling bad guys. So I recently, like, finally, after all this time, because I, I stopped collecting just before J. Scott Campbell left, and so I had never read this run. And I will just say, like, the art style really does make a huge difference because when you think of gen 13 it's like just like flashy wacky cartoony fun and gary frank is not wacky cartoony fun he does great facial expressions he really is great with poses i like how he renders figures but he doesn't scream energy and fun his art is not kinetic it's very posed and so like even though John Arcudi's like writing some very interesting takes with the characters and, and new thoughts, like the muted colors, like everything about it, just it really does change it in a major way to where you just as much as you know, these characters could be something else. They aren't that thing anymore. Um, have you ever had a chance to, to look at this? Uh, any of these issues, Chris? I don't remember if I read after the J. Scott Campbell. I really enjoyed uh, the early Gen 13 stuff and even the stuff like Gen 12. I liked that universe a lot, but like all comics, I found something new to read after uh, J. Scott Campbell left. And so I never really got into Arcudi and Frank. Okay. I feel like it's still worthwhile. I'm going to keep trying to read it because uh, I do. I love Gary Frank's art. It just doesn't feel like the right fit for this book. So we'll see. We'll see. Uh, but here's something fun is Wizard is bringing back their create a plot game, which is a chart that has four categories and four options on each line of where a story could go. So this is their Gen 13 create a plot. So we're going to each take turns choosing a plot point at random to see how our Gen 13 story shapes up. We'll post this to social media. You guys can play on your own here. The first part that they say is that an essential part of a Gen 13 story is an explosive lesbian splash page. Okay? 
So while leaning way back in a belly cut t-shirt, Rainmaker accidentally knocks over her KD Lang CD collection. Oh, come on. All right. What's our next category here, Chris? Sledgehammer character reinforcement. So that was distracting grunge from listening to insert flavor of the month band here and playing the N64 when out of nowhere. We have a seen it before plot twist. Caitlin Fairchild's long lost father breaks into the room exclaiming, hurry, Marvel's finally caught on to our lame Lockheed Quelock ripoff and is getting ready to. <laughs> a baffling purchase discovery. Uh-oh, time paradox. You mistakenly chose the ending of Gen 13 Interactive, a comic where readers chose the ending. Honest mistake with all the different Gen 13 comics out there, but combined with this stupid sidebar chart thing, you'll be trapped in this time loop forever. Quick, go pick a different ending. <laughs> I mean, it's funny to me that Wizard is so snarky about this because they promote Gen 13 so much, but they're just like, there's there's nothing to this book. <laughs> Here's what they do. Oh, that's fun. Yeah, so definitely look for this on social media. Read the rest of the options here. So what I want to bring up here quickly is, you know, we recently held our second annual superhero fantasy draft event on Zoom with a good group of listeners. It was really fun. Now, unfortunately, Chris, you weren't able to attend. You were making a long drive home. And so you sent me your preferred draft names and I made the picks for you during the game. So that was a lot of fun. How did you feel about the final list that I delivered to you? Oh, that was really close to what I sent you, except for the chaff at the end, I think sort of ruin the feel of the of the team but the i thought my team was uh would have been a good uh independent crossover event yeah it was slim pickets at the end there so i ended up going with mad dog from marvel comics <laughs> look it up or go back to an old episode maybe if you've been binging you remember when we talked about mad dog comics related to the bob sitcom but chris it, we didn't know that in this issue right after this event that wizard was getting it on the same game themselves. So why don't you tell us about this next article? So the all-wizard team where the Geeks in Congress New York drafted the ultimate superhero team. So who made the cut? Pretty much everyone you would expect. Captain America was chosen as a team leader. Superman was the powerhouse. Iron Man was the brains. Phoenix Jean Grey was chosen for her telekinetic and telepathic abilities. Sue Storm, the invisible woman, is selected for the defensive power of her first bubbles. Nightcrawler was a stealth operative with the ability to bamf himself anywhere. And finally, Dr. Fate was the magic user who could even the score. Though they're quick to point out that they wanted the Kent Nelson helmeted Dr. Fate, not the post-zero hour piece of crap. Funny. <laughs> And I would just say that that extreme 90s character was part of our fantasy draft roster and is actually picked by one of the players. So <laughs> so in their sloppy second sidebar, though, the Wizards crew shares the reasons other heroes didn't make their varsity squad. For example, Batman wouldn't get along with Captain America. Wally West is too self-centered. Kyle Rayner too immature. Doctor Strange isn't as powerful as fate and doesn't have a cool helmet. Hulk would smash everything. Martian Manhunter is just green Superman. Reed Richards is a control freak. Silver Surfer invites too many intergalactic threats. Wolverine has a problem with authority. And only image character on the list, Spawn, is not a team player. So out of all the characters they chose, who did you think does not belong this team, Adam? Well, like everybody on this team has superpowers or access to superpowers. So initially I was thinking Captain America because he's enhanced, but I know they picked him for his leadership skills. So ultimately I fell to Phoenix, to Jean Grey. The main reason being, I just think 
she's unstable and unpredictable it's like yeah she's really powerful but like if that phoenix thing kicks in for her again you're gonna have problems you know so maybe you don't want to have that issue that ticking time bomb you know on your team but what do you think oh nightcrawler sort of stuck out to me i mean i love nightcrawler but like you're trying to build a team of like the super draft all wizard team he just sort of feels like the 12th man on the 11th man roster. He's not quite the, for me, Martian Manhunter would have been a stronger stealth operative. That's a good you're point. Out, but, yeah, shape-shifting abilities for sure. So, But I, I just felt like he sort of, like you look at all the names on the list and like he just sort of felt, I don't know. When I build these teams, I fall into the habit of, would I want to read this comic and would these characters all get along? Yeah, and I, I feel like it's kind of boring this team like i i really thought you know wizard would do some funny stuff with it you know like i know they're trying to say this is the all-time best team so they're taking it seriously but it, it just feels like they could have gotten a little wackier with the choices and had more fun with it because i read it and i was just like okay <laughs> yeah. yeah it's like the, the strongest characters the smartest characters okay you know what's funny is the ones that got left off would have made a more interesting read so yeah. batman wallace Doctor Strange, Hulk, Martian Manhunter, Reed Richards. I'd read that one. That would have actually been the one I'd like. Yeah, I think I think you're right on that. Now, you know, a lot of those characters, you just read their names, have made it to the big screen, or at least in some form of adaptation. So it's time that we get into our next segment here, which is Heroes in Motion. So, Saban Entertainment is moving forward on developing a Captain America animated series for the Fox Kids Network. Now, we mentioned this briefly last issue, but now we're learning the project is being led by Will Mugnia. <laughs> Mugnia. I don't know, he's got a weird French name. Uh, he's one of the producers behind the X-Men animated series. He also did like Exo Squad and other stuff. But the series is going to be set during World War II because as the producer explains, quote, Silver Surfer has the outer space environment. Spider-Man is sort of urban. In order to separate Cap from the others, we would approach it more like it was Indiana Jones, a period adventure, big stakes, one man against the world. And now as for Cap's sidekick, Bucky, he's getting an update. Quote, we all had problems that Bucky was a 12-year-old guy who could deck people. So we made the decision that Bucky was going to be 17 years old and that Cap was going to be 24 or 25. The Fox Standards and Practices Department would obviously not be thrilled about Nazis and graphic wartime violence being part of the show, but adversaries for Captain America will still include Destroyer, Baron Blood, Baron Zemo, and of course, the Red Skull. Uh, speaking of the Red Skull, you know, the uh, in a recent issue we were covering, we posted the toy chest section and we put up like all these Marvel figures. And one of them was this Red Skull figure that had like this giant Red Skull missile launcher thing. And it's just like his giant face. And it cracked me up. Anyway, the producer has big plans for Cap's iconic shield slinging. Quote, we're going to construct Cap's shield as a three-dimensional object. And we're going to use motion capture for Cap's fighting moves. Very ambitious. 
Now, all of these plans, though, were tentative, as the team was merely outlining 13 episodes while coming up with character designs for the series at this point. So sadly, though, for all their excitement, Fox never raises the flag on a Captain America cartoon. So I ask you, Chris, do you think a Captain America cartoon would have connected with kids of the late 90s? Or was the concept too advanced for young minds, too old? They just don't, you don't have a concept of history at that point. What do you think? I just think it uh, depends on what they're aiming at, the age they're aiming it at. If they're aiming it for like eight to 10 year olds, it may have been off the mark a little bit. You're aiming it for the, you're doing a war cartoon between 10 to 13 year old. It might fit. It might work. I mean, it sort of seems like that was sort of the, they just took that and translated it to Captain America, the first Avenger for the most part, right? Made Bucky older and gave him the update. Yeah, and also it feels like, you know, that was the direction they were going. Like, Silver Surfer is a pretty heady cartoon, how they produced it. So I think they were just saying, you know, Spawn's on HBO. There was Batman the Animated Series. We're just making, like, serious, you know, adventure that older people can enjoy at this point, and kids will catch up to it. So, I don't know, it, it might have worked, but I, I guess it's just like Captain America for like an international audience, that's where I feel like maybe they decided, like, I'm curious to see when they report on it, why they pulled the plug. Maybe they just thought, you know, maybe it doesn't appeal abroad and we can't sell it. But if he's with the Avengers, then we, you know, we have everybody on board and then, you know, he's just one of the characters. So, but our next piece here, Liefeld to make his mark reports on yet another of the film projects being developed by Rob Liefeld that never sees the light of day. It's revealed that an original screenplay by by Liefeld called The Mark is in early stages of development through Universal Pictures with Will Smith as its star. This is after it was originally being developed by Tom Cruise's production company in 1993 for Paramount. I will say, you know, Rob Liefeld has talked about this at length uh, on his Observations podcast. So if you want to get all the details there, but this is what we knew because it says here, Liefeld met Smith through his girlfriend and eventual wife, Jada Pinkett, who is a comic book fan. And it was reported that Awesome Entertainment, in the article we read previously, was going to be publishing a comic book that she was writing. But Liefeld reports that he first presented the Mark concept to Smith two days before Men in Black became a blockbuster hit. And according to Rob, in kind of a confusing explanation, he put his arm around me and said, this is going nowhere. I'm doing this. I can't imagine it not being done with Will Smith now. So I think he's saying he thought Men in Black was going nowhere. So he wanted to do Rob's story instead. But of course, <laughs> Men in Black becomes a huge hit. So I'm sure that is where uh, the story ended for the mark in Will Smith. But Liefeld reportedly also has another script called Crash, K-R-A-S-H exclamation point, that appears to be headed to 20th Century Fox, it says in quotations. So, appears to be headed. Uh, that's where he's going to make a call, I guess. And the Bad Rock movie at New Light Cinema has just gotten a rewrite, resulting in what he calls a Beavis and Butthead superhero movie. I ask you, how can one man create so much but produce so little. Like you said, Chris, earlier. Just jump into this, jump into that, jump into this. I got this, I got that, okay. But we can't follow you on any one thing. So let me ask, if you had to choose just one Liefeld property to actually get adapted to live action or animation, after all these years, decades of telling us he was getting something made, what would it be? What do you want to see? Honestly, I'd watch the... Like, if he took the first Youngblood run he did and did something with it, with, like, 
he presented it and he got some people to tune it up. I think it could be, it'd be fun. I liked his original Youngblood uh, designs. It wasn't great, but it was a popcorn, popcorn series. It was fun to read. It just died down. He didn't get anything out fast enough. So then all interest in it croaked. Yeah. I mean, I think this Bad Rock movie at New Line Cinema is probably the thing that would have had the most legs. It just seems like it's such a cartoony, wacky character. It's a, you know, a kid and a giant body. Like there's so many elements to that character that would appeal to like a full family audience is kind of how he's like, it's for every age. Everybody can like it. And I think even though it would have been very of the moment, I think it could have connected somehow. And I think I would enjoy just a silly, ridiculous bad rock series. You're probably right. I think uh, that would have been my second choice. Bad Rock was also in Youngblood, so I think I could have would have had some of that in the one that I was choosing too. Yeah, because they could at least have some cameos from his Youngblood teammates. All right, give us our next piece here. A new live-action Wonder Woman TV series is reported to be in development at NBC with a national casting call for the lead role taking place from December 1997 through January 1998 and some of the casting events taking place at select Warner Brothers studio stores nationwide. The premise is as follows. This version of Wonder Woman travels to America as Diana Prince, professor of Greek history at UCLA. In more live-action DC Comics news, Tim Allen, star of Home Improvement, expressed interest in playing Brainiac, opposite Nicolas Cage's Superman. Kevin Spacey is mentioned as being up for the role of Lex Luthor, and of course eventually gets the role in Superman Returns. Finally, the previously mentioned writer of Uncanny X-Men, Steven T. Seagal, is writing a live-action film based on his House of Secrets comic book from DC. Which, if any of these projects, would you have most wanted to see come to fruition? Oh? <laughs> Tim Allen as Brainiac? Like, that, that would have blown my mind. I mean, it just it would have added one more layer to how out of control that Tim Burton Superman movie would have been. So I, I think that's the one just looking back on it. I would have wanted that movie to be as crazy as possible. And Tim Allen as Brainiac would have delivered that. <laughs> what about you? I'm interested in the house of secrets. I wish I could have a uh, live action film based on house of secrets. I'd be, uh, I'd be down for that. Yeah. And it's general enough that yeah, yeah that could appeal to non-comic book audiences in a big way. I will say we're going to have a follow-up in our next episode about that Wonder Woman TV series and the casting. They do a full article, like one of the women that was there to actually, you know, get her chance to play Wonder Woman. They actually had her write like a diary of her audition process. So it's going to be really interesting to see how that played out. Now, the next story here, though, talking about these uncanny X-Men writers, Scott Lobdell, there he is again, reportedly sold a pilot for a show he created called Original Sin to NBC. Says Lobdell, quote, it's a story of Cynthia Holland, a California housewife and mother who wakes up one morning to discover that she's the first synthetic construct to develop a soul. And as a result, the evil Digitel is out to recapture its property. Though Lovedell does go on to do some TV work, Original Sin is never produced as a TV series or a comic book, which it seems like that would have been the obvious choice with his connections. Just adapt your script into a comic series. Why not? You know, give us our next piece here because this is a doozy. Well, just because it is one of the big stories of the 90s, we have to share the short piece titled Painful Programming, an Anime Accident 
occurred in Japan this past December when TV Tokyo's popular cartoon Pokemon showed a character flashing his strobe-like light eyes and caused more than 600 young booers to have epilepsy-like seizures of spasms and nausea. The victims, aged 3 to 20, and including some people who watched the scene on a news show, were quickly hospitalized and broadcaster immediately stopped the episode from being shown on 30 other stations. Pokemon features Japanese incarnations of pocket monsters and based on a Nintendo game. It's amazing to read this report written in a world where the USA had not been, yet been introduced to Pokemon and to realize that these events inspired a joke on The Simpsons when the family visits Japan. So, Adam, do you remember this news story? I 100% remember this news story. It was so strange. Like, it was just one of those situations where you were just like, what? TV could do that to you? And again, like, Pokemon meant nothing to me except that I had some friends that were ahead of the curve because where I grew up in a very uh, heavily Asian community. And so a lot of the import stuff from Japan, like when they'd go to visit family, a lot of the kids would come back. And I there was uh, this store that sold a lot of Japanese import, like food and toys and candy and stuff and they sold these cookies that came with these like pokemon stickers that were on like a reflective silver background and they were like the hot thing in my neighborhood at this point like i was a little too old for them but the slightly younger kids were all trading them it's like i kind of got a little preview of pokemon back then but i just thought this was just crazy to me that you were just like it's sending people to the hospital and from that on like any flashing light i felt like that was always the first thing that came to mind i'm like oh is this gonna be a pokemon scenario <laughs> what about you did you did this make it your way back then yeah i remember the news story so i'm i'm a bit older than you but i was definitely into collectible card games and magic the gathering was a big one and my roommate at the time she was uh japanese and she was going back home for the holidays and i asked her to bring me back some Japanese magic cards because the time the foreign edition of the Magic the Gathering cards were pretty sought after. So I was hoping she could bring me some packs back with her. Well, she came back and she didn't have those and she had a bunch of other random packs of cards for games that I didn't know what they were because I couldn't couldn't read Japanese. <laughs> and fast forward to about a year later, I'm watching this cartoon on WB and I saw that electric yellow rat and immediately recognized it from one of those packs of cards I got from her and I immediately ran and dug those cards out and looked at them. And sure enough, I had Japanese Pokemon cards before the American ones had been released actually. Wow, man. Did you make a mint off of those? Did you ever get to resell them? I've, I've sold a few, but they're, I, I kept them. They're just, it's sort of like a memory of that time. And uh, she was a pretty cool roommate. So yeah, that's awesome. Uh, yeah. It's just sort of like that little, fun story now finally here in a sidebar titled must be tv wizard names five 90s comic book series they feel were perfect to be adapted as a weekly television series here's their intro here though anyone remember tv's spider-man the flash or lois and clark we do and they stunk. If networks wanted to get serious about doing quality live action comic to TV shows, here's Wizard's selection of five comic series that it translate perfectly to the small screen. So these included Preacher, Quantum and Woody, Resurrection Man, Strangers in Paradise, and Star Wars X-Wing Rogue Squadron. Now, of course, Preacher eventually does get adapted by Seth Rogen, but which of these do you feel, Chris, had the best shot at being a success if produced, you know, in this era, 1998, 2000, somewhere in there. I didn't really read Strangers in Paradise, but for some reason, that's the one that I'm going to go with. I feel like that was such a 90s type of property 
that like all of these would have been done, but I don't think Strangers of Paradise was one that needed a lot of special effect that may not have been able to do on a television show in the 90s. And it, the bits and pieces I read definitely felt like it would have fit in with like uh, the big 90s sitcom boom. Yeah, I mean, honestly, it feels to me like just before the CW was a thing, you know, it was still the WB network at this point, but like Dawson's Creek and everything is about to happen. And it feels like Strangers in Paradise could have been on the WB in some form and been a hit, you know, for the slightly older crowd, like the Felicity crowd, you know, for sure. Um, but my choice, I mean, I have said this many times before we mentioned like because Quantum and Woody and Resurrection Man were just my books at this time. I love them so much. And I really think Quantum and Woody would have been good, but I don't I don't feel that audiences were ready at this time. But I think Resurrection Man would have worked because you could work with any budget you need because all he has to do is die and then he comes back with a different power but it doesn't have to be you know involve cgi or anything like that you could just say he has this new power they could be creative every single week because they describe it here it's the fugitive meets quantum leap i don't know about the fugitive part but the quantum leap uh, element is definitely very similar so I, i i would say resurrection man for me but hey, you know, there are some other guys that uh, were having some success on TV and uh, another one, not so much. We're going to rev up Jim and Todd's Hype Machine. So Todd McFarlane did an interview in issue 77 that we covered, but as a way of attracting readers to their new website, Wizard published the entire 7,500 word transcript exclusively in digital form. Now, this was actually pointed out by one of our listeners on social media. So a shout out to at uh, Uboy Comic for remembering that this was a thing. We need to look it up and see if like on the Wayback Machine on archive.org, if you could pull up that full transcript, because that'd be interesting to see the uncut version of that interview. Interview. But also, the second season of the Spawn animated series on HBO is reported to kick off with a confrontation between Spawn and Chapel, while a third season is in development, which will reportedly include more of the comic book mythology. But were you a fan of the Spawn animated series on HBO? Were you able to tune in for that? Sadly, I did not have HBO at really any point in my life, so I haven't, uh, I haven't seen it. Yeah, I only ever saw it like uh, in music stores or like, you know, media stores where they would have it on VHS. And I was always like, oh, okay. And then eventually I rented it from Blockbuster Video, I think, when it was on DVD during their waning days. So (laughs) saw some of it. Now it's on Max, I believe. So you can check it out on that streaming service. But um, I will mention, speaking of collectible card games, Chris, the only Jim Lee news in this issue is a repeat of a previously reported collectible card game tie-in with a Wildstorm comic book series it was called c23 which lee had developed through wizards of the coast the minds behind magic the gathering unfortunately Ghibli did not have the same magic touch you see what i did there huh anyway uh in your collectible card game experience c23 did that ever cross your path it did i remember buying it just because it was a jim lee thing uh, it failed miserably it was uh and i think part of it was I don't think the comic succeeded at all. So like you try to do a comic and a card game at the same time. Most of these licensed properties usually did well if it was already an established property. I did play the Wildstorms game, but again, it's one that lasted a few sets and then it went extinct as well because of 
it was a game that was really focused on Wildstorm's characters. So you didn't have a lot of crossover from other uh, card game players. And it was a very busy game. There was a lot to it. And it just didn't didn't hold up for most casual players. Yeah, it seemed like he got a little desperate at the end because I believe that, like, I, I was trying to remember if it was this issue or the previous issue, but there was an ad for, you know, like an expansion set of the Wild Storms, but he was bringing in other image characters finally. So I think, like, Spawn popped up on there and something, you know? So, like, at some yeah. point, he was just like, come on, anybody, please play the game. Well, he had the live human models were chase cards. So the Gen 13 girls. Yep. And- like a couple others in that i think it was in that expansion and they also had the and i think i can't remember which expansion it was but they had the heroes reborn characters in there as well somehow they were able to get the marvel gave them permission to use iron man and those characters in the card game as well wow yeah that's that's wild i know yeah right at the end of heroes reborn he was getting to do a lot of crossover stuff he even did a trading card series where he just kind of did all those you know, Marvel and Wildstorm characters together. But let's get into our final tally here. So Jim Lee mentioned just four times in this issue. Todd McFarlane, once again, racking up three mentions. So that brings our running total to Jim Lee, 471 mentions. Todd McFarlane, 443. Well, we are going to wrap this thing up. It's going to get interesting as we check out Turok's Top 10. So this is the top 10 ways the Marvel Universe would be different if it were set in France. And this is Wizards' continuing attack (laughs) on the country of France. I don't know where it's coming from, but boy, they are just having some fun uh, at their expense. Let's get to reading here, Chris. You want to kick us off? So number 10, Captain America would be Captain France and he would have surrendered to Hydra and been executed by now. (laughs) Number nine. Iron Mime. (laughs) Number eight. The Hulk becomes a pretentious bastard who can only discuss the significance of Kiergaard's fear and trembling. Wow, yeah. Very intellectual Hulk. Uh, Number seven. Batrock the Leaper would spend every issue of his regular series appeasing his foes. What does that mean exactly? I guess just again, like surrendering. (laughs) He's appeasing the foes. Okay. Uh, Number six. Jerry Lewis team up. 10,000 Frenchmen can't be wrong. All right, number five. It would be the friggin' Nazi Marvel Universe since the WW2 era invaders would have folded like a house of cards against the Axis when the first bullet flew. Man, they're just harping on that one thing. Yeah. Number four, DC would have won Marvel versus DC. (laughs) (laughs) Number three, Avengers English Butler Jarvis out. Acting hunk Gerard Depardieu in. <laughs> Number two, the amazing Le Peregrine, spectacular Le Peregrine, sensational Le Peregrine, and Louis de Purine Le Peregrine. <laughs> okay, so all these Spider Man titles, I guess. I don't know. We have right. to have some of our French Canadian listeners uh, translate that one for us. And finally, the number one way the Marvel Universe would be different if it were set in France, it'd suck. 
Well, there you go, wizard. I don't know about that one. I don't think you're trying too hard, but I do like Iron Mime, Jerry Lewis team up. <laughs> All right, Chris. Well, this has been fun, man. This is a good issue. There's a lot to talk about in here. Thank you so much uh, for being uh, the one who was able to show up. <laughs> Thanks for having me. I had fun. Uh, so why don't you tell people where they can find you on social media so they can check out your awesome finds? Primarily, I'm on Instagram, which is Beatles underscore Toy Box. On Instagram, which is B-E-A-T-L-E-S underscore Toy Box. And then on Twitter, or X, I suppose. Yeah. Found as Beatle underscore Toy Box. So B-E-A-T-L-E underscore Toy Box. All right. Well, yeah. So this was great. I, I would recommend going to check out the account because you're going to see a lot of fun stuff. But hey, you know where to find us on social media for now. We are on X, which is so strange to say for the moment, at Wizards Comics, on Instagram at Wizards underscore comics. Uh, we recently held a survey and you guys all said you want us to be on threads. So I guess we're going to set up a Threads account. We have applied for a Blue Sky beta account. So, you know, we'll just uh, hedge our bets there. And hopefully we all find each other on whatever uh, platform ends up being dominant in the future. Uh, but of course, go out over to YouTube. You want to get on there and subscribe to Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. You can find our Facebook group as well. And of course, Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Wizards Comics, where we're continuing to add new members of the Patreon. And uh, hey, it's time to shout them out. Jay, welcome to the crew. Andrew, glad to have you. Isaac Zahavi, Evan Bryant, Gary Hutcherson, Fernando Pinto, Jeremy Daw, Greg Schuler, Meltface Killa, Brian Acosta, Steve King, Denim Jedi, Mitchell Hall, Lee Markowitz, Stephen Forshaw, Nikki Adjacent at the Retro Network, and Mark McDonald. You guys make it so much more fun to do this show. Give us opportunities to expand the podcast. Thank you for all that you do. As for what they're getting for their five bucks a month, there's so many perks of Patreon, but at this point, you've heard me share them with you so often. I really just say go over to patreon.com forward slash wizards comics you can actually scroll through even though you only get a brief bit of the description but you get to see the photo you get to see everything that's on there decide if it's worth your five bucks a month i think it will be a lot of people are just doing it to support the show and we are really appreciative of that but of course uh, we will be back with issue number 80 our special guest for that is william bibiani from the critically acclaimed network and i would tell you there's additionally a lot of cool stuff in that issue as well but until next time, keep your books bagged and boarded. This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.